But there's a line in the book that says, are these extravagant promises? We think not. They're being fulfilled among us, sometimes quickly, sometimes slowly. But you can't expect a miracle. Well, hello, friends of Bill W. and other friends. You have landed on Sober Speak. My name is John M. I am an alcoholic, and we are glad you are all here, especially newcomers. Newcomers, that is, both to recovery as a whole and newcomers to this podcast. Sober Speak is a podcast about recovery centered around the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous. My job here on Sober Speak is simple. My job is to provide a platform to the amazing stories of recovery all around us. Consider Sober Speak, if you will, your meeting between meetings. Please remember, we do not speak for AA or any 12 step community. We represent only ourselves. We are here to share our experience, strength, and hope with those who wish to come along for the ride, take what you want, and leave the rest at the curb for the trash man to pick up. Greetings from Studio AA, deep in the heart of Texas, on this here episode number 272 of Sober Speak. That was the voice of me that you heard at the beginning of this here episode, and you are going to hear so much more from me in just a moment. But first things first, this here episode is brought to you by Trudy and Chad. Guess what Trudy and Chad did? Well, they went to our website, www.soberspeak.com. They clicked on the little yellow donate tab and they made a, a contribution. So thank you so much, Trudy and Chad, for your generosity and helping us to keep the virtual lights on. This episode number 272 is coming right out to Ewan's. So this one, this here episode is... Uh, a recorded live session by John M. Some of you may recognize him. Uh, the title of this episode is Extravagant Promises. And it was recorded in Frisco, Texas, in front of a really kind of a group of friends of mine. Uh, and so let me say this. I've had a lot of people over the several years that I've been doing this uh, to um, have prodded me and asked me to record my story or release something that was my story or whatever the case may be. And I generally, if they write me on email or whatever, I, I point them to other podcasts that I have been on and say, you know, you can go listen to me over there. Um, but I've had a real, I don't know why. In fact, I feel a little nervous about this right now as I'm saying it. I have a little bit of um, reservation uh, and featuring me on my podcast. It, there's something that just doesn't seem right about it. But um, this recording uh, is about a year old or so, and um, I 
uh, it has been sitting on my desktop, not my physical desktop, but my computer desktop for uh, uh, over a year now, I, I believe. Um, in fact, it took me a long time even to put it into some audit into some uh, audio software that I use to, uh, you know, do the editing with these things. And so it's been out there for uh, on my desktop for a long time. And I just kept putting it off and putting it off and putting it off and editing other people's episodes. And then finally, for whatever reason, I, I thought, let's just go ahead and get it out there. Um, but once again, I had reservations about doing it. And I will say that my friend Casey Debbia, who has been on the podcast for several episodes in the past, gave me some gentle and very nice and very pleasant prodding at one point, And that kind of helped to get me up over the hump. In fact, Casey was sitting next to me uh, when this was being recorded. And you'll notice that there is a, a lady who is named Katie. Uh, and I talk about her on the front end of this particular episode. And she was there and it was her very first meeting ever. Casey looked over at me and he said, hey, no pressure. <laughs> so uh, I do get a little emotional at points. Uh, keep in mind, this is like sharing with a group of friends. And uh, um, and, and it's just uh, at least a part of me and my story. So enjoy, hopefully. Uh, and if not, I understand. And keep in mind, we will have plenty. Oh, listener feedback at the end of this episode. Oh, I did want to tell you this. So there is a um, there is a quote that I actually, when I was live on the mic, uh, mess up, uh, and, uh, it's what I'm calling this episode and it's called extravagant promises. And, uh, but I wanted to read all of the promises here before this takes off and, uh, show you what I'm referencing. It says, and this is many of you are going to know this passage from the big book is from 83 and 84 of the big, big book. It says, if we are painstaking, about this phase of our development. We will be amazed before we are halfway through. We are going to know a new freedom and a new happiness. We will not regret the past nor wish to shut the door on it. We will comprehend the word serenity and we will know peace. No matter how far down the scale we have gone, we will see how our experience can benefit others. That feeling of uselessness and self-pity will disappear. We will lose interest in selfish things and gain interest in our fellows. Self-seeking will slip away. Our whole attitude and outlook upon life will change. Fear of people and of economic insecurity will leave us. We will intuitively know how to handle situations which used to baffle us. We will suddenly realize that God is doing for us what we could not do for ourselves. And this is the extravagant promises part. It says, are these extravagant promises? We think not. They are being fulfilled among us, sometimes quickly, sometimes slowly. They will always materialize if what? We work for them. Enjoy this, hopefully, and uh, we will have plenty of listener feedback at the end of this episode. Enjoy. Thank you. 
really go all out on our podiums here, don't we? <laughs> My name is John. I'm an alcoholic. So good to see all of you all. Thanks for asking me. Uh, is, is it Katie? Is that right? Hey, Katie. Oh my goodness. At the end of this meeting, just keep this in mind, most of the meetings are much better than this one. <laughs> we're, we're so glad you're here. So glad you're here. Oh my goodness. Like Casey said, no pressure. It's her first meeting, right? Uh, yeah, yeah. Come back. We'll give you a much better impression after this one. I got to tell you, I'm a little, I'm dealing with some disappointment today. My wife, uh, she subscribes to People Magazine. It came in the mail today. I went and checked the mail. And once again, I am not the sexiest man alive. And I thought for sure I was a shoe in this week, in this year. Um, but it looks like I'm not going to make it again. They say we are each like angels with only one wing. And the only way that we can fly is to embrace each other. You all, uh, not only in this room, but others that I've come in, come in contact with in Alcoholics Anonymous have been my other wing for many years now. By the grace of God and you people, I have been sober since uh, May 29th of 1989. And um, I did it all by myself. I'm a fortunate man that that all happened. When I think about the fellowship, I think about, some of you may have heard this story before, but it's about the guy who died and he goes to heaven. He gets up there with St. Peter. St. Peter looks at him and he goes, well, welcome. You know, we've been awaiting you. And St. Peter says, now, I can't remember though. Can you help me out? Which religion were you? We have a few of them here. You know, we'll just kind of go ahead and send you on into that group. And the guy says, well, you know, it's really kind of interesting. I, I didn't have any sort of religion while I was down there on earth. He goes, oh, oh, it always makes this tough. He goes, well, we're going to make this like House Centers International. We're going to give you three choices, all right? Uh, you can go to door number one, door number two, door number three, wherever you want to go, just head on in there. He goes, okay, let me go check this out. He goes up to the first door and he opens it and he looks in there and he sees all these people in there. They're sitting in these hard wooden pews, and they have these white starch collars on, uh, and all the guys have ties on. They're all sweating and such like that, and he says, well, what is that? He goes, well, those are the Protestants, and they, well, they think this is joy. He says, ah, oh, that didn't look like much fun. He says, you got anything else? And he goes to the second door, and he opens it up, and he looks in there, and he says, and he looks in there and he sees all these people, a lot of them have these rosary beads in their hands and they're saying this prayer over and over and over and over and, and they're all sweating at the brow and they see, keep doing these homilies and, and all these kinds of things. He says, well, who is that? He says, well, those are the Catholics and well, they still think they're trying to get in, right? They're, they're, they're just not sure yet. He says, ah, oh, that didn't sound like much fun either. You got you, do you have anything else? And he goes to the third door, and he opens it up. And as he opens it up, the smoke comes pouring out, and he smells all this bad coffee, and he sees a lot of people, and they're all, like, cussing and telling dirty jokes and rubbing up against each other. And, and he says, well, who is that? He says, well, it's interesting you should ask that. He goes, we're not sure who they are, actually. And they say they're not going to tell us who they are. <laughs> but our policy is just to let them hang out because they say they'll only be here one day at a time. Right? <laughs> 
And that's what you guys have kind of been to me, right? I, I was looking for a way in. I wanted to be with somebody. And there were all these groups. out. There were a lot of people my entire life who had been um, trying to help me out. I mean, and they had all good intentions. But for whatever reason, it was the dirty jokes and the bad language and the smoking, at least when I came in, and all the bad coffee and stuff and that kind of... That made me feel settled. It made me feel comfortable. I saw the light in you guys. I saw somebody that said, I was like this, this is what happened, and this is how I am today. And I knew that it was much different than me, right? I knew that that my life had been going down the toot-toot and going down quickly, and I didn't want to stay that way. And I had no idea how to get out, but I knew somehow you guys could help me. You know, we're coming up on the holidays here. One of the experiences I can remember when I first got sober, well, let me put it this way. If there had been a I Hate Christmas Anonymous group, I would have been the president. I I just hated everything about Christmas. I didn't like Thanksgiving. I didn't like the holidays. I didn't like New Year's. I didn't like any of it. And I had some good reasons for that, right? And if I were to set you down and you were my therapist or whatever, you can say, well, I could see how you would not like Christmas. That would be uh, understandable. But what happened is, is that after about a year, year and a half of being in the program, I had moved into this, this little apartment. I was, you know, working on being sober. And, uh, you know, my first year had been really kind of cool. And all of a sudden, it kind of hit me. I thought to myself, you know what? I have taken so much out of Christmas and Thanksgiving and the whole holiday season for so many years. And I think it's time to just start putting something back in. And I had a buddy of mine. In fact, I was sponsoring at the time. His name was Doug. And uh, I called up Doug and I said, hey, Doug. Actually, I went out to the store and I bought this little, this little wreath. You know, those people that, well, they... Um, they drive around town and they put the, the horns on their cars and they put, they put all, this, all these decorations on their car. Well, I hated those people more than anything. <clears throat> but I called my buddy and I said, you know, I got this little wreath I want to start putting back into the holidays. So I would drive over to his house and we get some rope and we tie it on the, the front of my car. I had a little Honda CRX, which I had bought with embezzled money, but that's a different story. Uh, when I say embezzled, you know what people come in, they say, you know, I had cash register honesty. Well, I knew I was sunk because I had taken all of this money out of a cash register and bought my first brand new car. I thought, well, I'm a little sunk here. But nonetheless, I went over to his house and I take my little Honda CRX over there and, uh, and he ties that around and all of a sudden I'm driving around town and I got a wreath on front of my car. And then I went home to my little apartment and I went to like, you know, Walgreens or Records or whatever it was at the time, some little drugstore. And, and I went in and I brought these real cheap, decorations and I went home to my little apartment and I I placed them in different spots. I mean there, there was no there was no coordination to it it was just I had little things up in my apartment and I decided I was going to put back into Christmas and then I thought to myself you know what I never receive Christmas cards why doesn't anybody ever give me Christmas cards you know maybe my dad will send one or something like that but nobody ever sends me one And then this thought just went through my head and it said, 
That's because you never give Christmas cards. And I'd never really thought about it that way. And all of a sudden, I started making this little Christmas card list that I had. And I still have it today. And I send out Christmas. And when I send things out, I'm not looking to get one back or anything like that. And by the way, if you're not on the list, you ought to be nicer to me during the year. <laughs> but I had this Christmas card, and I still keep that Christmas card going today. That is the type of thing that you guys have taught me to do. When I was growing up as a kid, I always wanted to be like uh, John Wayne. I wanted to be kind of the uh, rugged man, if you will. Now, when you want to be like John Wayne, and you're walking around trying to put on that persona, yet you look like Howdy Doody, <laughs> or Ralph Mouth. Uh, I used to get Danny Partridge a lot. When you look like Danny Partridge, and you're trying to pull off a John Wayne thing, uh, it doesn't very, it doesn't go up very well. My experience, uh, by the way, I don't know if any of you ever had a uh, like a, a drinking song. Mine was always, and still is. I still love it today. The song Desperado. I used to get in that little Honda CRX I was talking about, and I would drive down the road, and I would be drinking tequila. Tequila is my thing, by the way. I just absolutely love tequila. And it was Cuervo. Cuervo, and I used to drink that Cuervo, and I would get in that Honda CRX, and I would drive down the highway, LBJ over there, or any highway that I could, and then I would get that Desperado song, and I would crank it up as loud as I could crank it up. And right when it gets to the crescendo where it says, you better let somebody love you before it's too late. Well, I would just start bawling my <laughs> eyes out. And, and I mean, it's funny now, but you know, you do not want somebody like that driving down the road. <laughs> the Department of Highway uh, or the Transportation uh, Department does not recommend that. It's not really the best way to get out there. And, and uh, I was always putting off handling drinking until some other time. It's like the guy who, or, the, or there's a guy who dies, and then the, the two friends go to the funeral, and they're looking at each other, and they say to each other, ooh. Gosh, it's, it's too bad, you know. Oh, Don died at, uh, you know, 35 years old. He go, how did he die? They said, well, his alcoholism. Said, oh. He said, did he ever go to AA? He said, no. No, he wasn't that bad, you know. <laughs> and so I was always looking for that time to where it was going to be in the future, right? It was always past that July 4th, past that birthday, past that Christmas season, past New Year's, past whatever it was, I'm going to quit tomorrow. My experience with the second step in Alcoholics Anonymous in coming to believe in a power greater than myself was sitting in rooms just like this <clears throat> and listening to you all talk about your experience, strength, and hope when it came to believing in a power greater than yourself. That's what brought me to it. And like I told you, I had those people for many years who were trying to help me. They would take me to churches. They would take me to camps. They would take me to all these places. And they were very well-meaning. And I love those people. But they couldn't get through to me. 
When I came to Alcoholics Anonymous, after I got past that first step and I finally got a sponsor, by the way, I got that sponsor. I have a sponsor that I got in 1989. His name is Bob. He's still my sponsor today. And I tell him he's my temporary sponsor. <laughs> I'm going to try him out for a while and just kind of see how all this works out. But I got that sponsor. I had been in a, my first uh, uh, meeting for Alcoholics Anonymous was in 1986. Like I said, my sober date is in 1989, and I was able to, when Bob came up to me in 1989, he finally said, have you ever worked the steps? And I'm like, I could have had a V8, right? That's a great idea. You know, let's just go ahead and get started with that. And ever since that time, when he actually took me through the steps of Alcoholics Anonymous, that was my solution. I hadn't had to have a drink since then. And I know not everybody works like that, but that's how it worked for me. He sat me down, or we went over to the Al-Anon room at the Carrollton Group, which is where I got sober. And that's how they had this set up there. There was the AA room. And this used to be a lot of different rooms. I wish it was more like this. But they had the AA room over here, and then they had the Al-Anon room over there, and we'd all get to see each other on a consistent basis. And I really kind of miss that. I mean, I know in this particular group it's kind of hard with the setup and such, but Nonetheless, I got sober there, and uh, we went over to the Al-Anon room. We got on our knees after he'd explained steps one and two to me, you know, and everybody talks about this, but it was a little bit strange, right? Getting on your knees with another guy, having him hold your hand, you know, saying the third step prayer. And he says, I want you to look at this, and I want you to read this before we actually take it, because what I'm going to ask you to do afterwards is I want you to get into the fourth step, and I don't want you to take this if you you're not willing to go ahead and do the rest of the work. And so we got down on our knees and we said that prayer. And for those of you who don't know the prayer, it's on page 63. And it says, God, I offer myself to thee to build with me and to do with me as thou wilt. Here I am, God. I give you my health. I give you this rocky relationship that I have. I give you my career. I give you my job. Here I am, God. I offer myself to thee to build with me and to do with me as thou wilt. The second part of it says, relieve me of the bondage of self that I may better do thy will. Relieve me of constantly, constantly looking at me and thinking, how, how am I going to benefit from this situation? Help me to look at somebody else and to help somebody else. Please, Father, help me to do that. And then the third line in that says, take away my difficulties, my alcoholism, my selfishness, whatever it is. Take away my difficulties that victory over them may bear witness to those I would help of thy power and thy love and thy way of life. In other words, Take away my difficulties so that I can get famous. No. <laughs> Take away my difficulties that I can get rich. <clears throat> Take away my difficulties that I can draw attention toward me. No, none of that. Take away my difficulties so that others, Father, may see some sort of light inside me. And they may see how possibly that you have worked through me. 
And that's what I pray before I come up and do these things. That's what I pray before I share many different situations that I share. I'm always praying. And when I say I'm always praying, one of the prayers that I said before I came up here tonight is, please, Father, help us all as a group, whoever may be here, to grow closer to each other and help us to grow closer to you. I always see this. I've got this little triangle in my head, right, that there's God on top, and then there's me, and then there's you. And you can't break that triangle. In other words, my relationship with God affects my relationship with you. And my relationship with you affects my relationship with God. I can't break those apart. And people say, you know, well, maybe if I just get close to God, all will be okay. Well, no, I think they're all together, right? I have... When I have resentment in my heart against you, for whatever reason, that affects my relationship with God. And I don't want to go around that way. When I did my fist step with my sponsor, you know, it talks in, there, there's the fist step promises that you see in the book, that all the promises you get after you take, with your, uh, uh, after you take your fist step, walking on the broad highway of the universe and such, right? I didn't feel like I was walking on the broad highway of the universe. However, I did feel like I had done what I needed to do. I had taken the steps that I needed to take in order to progress in this program. And what I noticed is kind of a, I guess what you would call unintended consequence. I had gotten myself into some sordid situations in my life, things that I was not real proud of, things that I would not want to have on the five o'clock news. And because of these, it was starting to happen more often and more often that I would be in a normal conversation with a normal person, maybe even in a business situation or something like that. And all of a sudden, these little movies would go off in my head of these sordid situations which I had put myself in. And because of those movies, I was starting to develop this twitch, right? I almost looked like I had Tourette syndrome, you know? And I would just be taught, and at an inopportune time, the movies would start playing. And I thought, I am going nuts. What I had noticed after about a month or so, after doing that fist step, the movies disappeared. And I was going, what in the heck? Where did those movies go to? That's what I try to do in Alcoholics Anonymous. I try to just follow the process. And as I follow the process, things, unintended things that I never even thought about or was even considering have a tendency to work themselves out. When I sit in meetings like this with you all, you may be talking about one thing, but quite honestly, many times I'm processing some other sort of situation in my life, and I know that I just need to get my butt to a meeting, sit it down in a chair, and I can be able to process all of these various items. What I didn't talk to you about on the front end was where I grew up and how I grew up. My mom, or my dad and my mom, met each other. Uh, my dad was in the Air Force. My mother uh, lived over in Scotland. She grew up in Glasgow. Uh, she had, I believe, an eighth grade education. 
and they met each other while he was in the Air Force. He was over there. They came back to the States. Uh, I was born. I was actually born in Bangor, Maine. Don't know much about it, but I was born up there, and I was an Air Force brat for the first six years of my life. After that, my parents separated. They divorced. Then we kind of settled in Texas. Uh, that's how we got down to the Dallas area. I was growing up with my mom. She was a single mom. I had no brothers or sisters, and we were kind of on our own doing our thing. I was probably, I'm guessing, 10, 11. I could be off with that a little bit. I just started to notice that my mom seemed to have some difficulties. And when I say difficulties, there were things like I would go into the kitchen and she was turning off the stove. And she would turn off the stove and then she would sit there for about 30, 40 times and go off, 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 off. And she would do that over and over. And then she would go up to the door and she would lock the front door and then she would look at it and she would say, lock, lock, lock. And she would do that 30, 40, 50 times. It would sometimes just go on endlessly. She would close the car doors and she would do all that same sort of stuff. Now, I didn't know what was going on at the time. Nobody really talked about any sort of mental illness when I was a kid. I just knew it was weird. I was growing up with her. Sometimes we'd live in two-bedroom apartments. Sometimes we'd live in one-bedroom apartments. She would get kind of, she would get various jobs. She always had a job. She was always working, and she would support us. I didn't have many people coming over to the apartment. And then I noticed when I was about 14, 15, right in that area, my mom, she had this saying, she used to say there was, I don't know who it was, some queen of England or something like that. Somebody who said, you can never be too rich or too thin. And my mom grew up right when, if you know her, Twiggy was popular in the 60s. And she took that and ran with it. She became anorexic, or she, she may have been that way in my entire Childhood didn't know it, but anyway, she was anorexic, she was bulimic. Um, she would get down to uh, 75, 80, 90 pounds. She had no idea how she looked. She would put her bikini on and go out to the pool, and every bone in her body was protruding outwards, and she thought it looked okay. Of course, I'm a kid. I see what's going on. Uh, I am embarrassed. And around 17 years old, 16, 17 years old, this is a perfect storm for me. All I want to do is get out of the house. I went to my first party where beer was served, and I got drunk that night. And I'm like most of you, like all of a sudden, it, I was just, I had found the answer. I wanted nothing else but to get out and drink from that point on. Uh, now, it wasn't every night, but I would go out every night that I possibly could. 
I would get tied on. I remember there was a place we had down here off of Greenville. It was called Bowling and Wilson. And I even knew when I was 17, we, we would go into these places and we would give them our ID card. I mean, you didn't have to even be the same race. And you could get in there, right? As long as the date was appropriate, they would let you in. And I'd be sitting there at Bowling Wilson and listening to them play all this music. And I started thinking to my, and I can remember even at that age thinking, okay, either I am not going to drink tonight and go home and not have a hangover tomorrow, or I'm going to drink. And I know it is balls to the wall or however you want to say it. I, now, I didn't know that was an alcoholic at that time. All I knew is if I had one drink, it was on for the night. So my mom, like I said, she was, she was not doing well. And all I want to do at this point is get out of the house. I find this refuge in alcohol. And it's very interesting because um, when I was going to school, I was in high school, and I was very, uh, all of a sudden, as soon as I found that alcohol, I could fit into every group. And I was a very, very popular kid. I was, you were actually looking at the Valentine King <laughs> from my particular high school, right? They had the homecoming queen and the Valentine King. And I was Mr. Valentine King. And I was voted all this stuff. And basically anything that I ran for, you know, I wanted to be elected to, I could get elected for it. And so I had this, and the reason I'm explaining that, though, is because I had this, this high school life where I was very popular and I was starting to drink and I was going out dancing all the time and I was doing all this kind of stuff and then I had this this life with my mom at home and I would come home and all of a sudden she started to develop these illnesses one of them was like a an asthma illness and, and what I mean by that is that she would go to the doctor because at every time on a certain days she would lose her breath the, we'd have to put a foil on the windows because she didn't want any sort of light coming in or anything like that and she would start to develop these weird illnesses and she started to develop sinus issues and, and all sorts of things and, and and I would come home and she'd be sitting there in the middle of the floor gasping for air because she was trying to get breath because she said she had asthma but all the doctors are telling her she doesn't and and I'm just coming into the room and I'm just going I want to leave and so we started to get into all of these sometimes we would get physical with each other because basically what happened is she didn't want me to leave the apartment she wanted me to stay there with her because I was the only thing that represented any sort of form of sanity to my mother. And so she would stand in front of the door and I would take her out of the way and I would get out of the house and I would get with my friends and we would get loaded. She had no idea what was going on. She was just so wrapped up in her world um, and she knew it was... And we used to have this thing to where we would, we were always moving from place to place to place. Like she would decide she wanted to save money. And so she would find a friend to go live with, a woman. I remember this one woman and this other woman and her son. And, and I mean, these would be like one bedroom apartments. And she would get us in there and I'd be sleeping on the couch and I'd be going to school during the day and then coming home at night. And, you know, we were constantly moving to different cities. I, I must have been in, I, I don't know, 20, 30 different cities that we were living in during those high school years. And, and I, I, not, not cities, but different places, different locations. I still, to this day, 
Ask my wife. I still save cardboard boxes in the garage because I'm constantly thinking that I'm about to move. I, I, so I'm constantly thinking, I'm, you know, we've been in my house now for 15 years, and I'm still thinking, save that box because we're going to need it. But it's just wild how your mind works. So she's going through this, and I'm finding my way out, and I'm getting into alcoholism and drug addiction, and there was a certain point to where we just split off, and I went to live my life. I was probably, I think I was 18. And, and she just really went off the deep end. And then she went out to California uh, to try to live with my aunt. And that didn't work out well. And, and, and there was a certain point to where I, she didn't know my address. I didn't want her to know my address. And it was really a rough situation. Then comes Alcoholics Anonymous. And so I come in here getting sober. And it is kind of a happy time in my life. But then all of a sudden, about six months into it, I called my sponsor one day and I said, I want to go find my mom. I said, I know where she is. Or I have a, my friends would tell me where she is. In other words, my friends would see her walking in the street. Now, my mom was about five foot one and she would shave her hair down to a number two and then dye it black. And she would dye her eyebrows and such. And she'd wear all black. And she'd wear, she had a big black purse. And she would walk the streets. And I would have buddies of mine who would see her. She had become basically, she wasn't homeless. She had an apartment that she went back to. But she would walk the streets all day and go into these various uh, shops and she would get thrown out of the shops. And, uh, my buddies would see her walking on the street, so I knew where she was. So I went to go find her, and I saw her walking in the street. And before I went there, um, my sponsor sat me down, and he said, just, now just remember, you keep your side of the street clean, okay? And I had this kind of script in my head of what I wanted to say and how I wanted to say it. Like I said, I, I found her. I could see her. She was walking across the parking lot, uh, and I parked my car. And I got out of it, and from about 20, 30 yards away, I yelled for her. I said, Mom, it's me. It's Johnny. She called me Johnny. And at first she looked at me, and she was just rail thin. She looked at me, and there was kind of a haunting in her eyes. I don't know how else to describe it. She looked at me, and she finally figured out who it was. And we hadn't seen each other probably in three years at that point. And I was expecting a big hug or something like that. She looked at me and she says, I hate you. Get out of my life. I never want to see you again. And she turned on her heels and she started walking down the street again. I didn't chase after her. I didn't do anything. But I got back in my car and, when I, and I talked to my sponsor later that night. He told me afterwards he was very afraid I was going to drink after that. I didn't even think about drinking. But he said, you know, you need to get on with your life. She's emotionally unavailable. I got on with my life. Uh, about three years later, I went back to school, as a lot of us do. I got my degree. Uh, it was a much different experience than the first time I went to school when I was drinking. <laughs> I was like 3.87 on the, you know, dean's list and all this kind of stuff. The first time I went, I, I went to Texas Tech my first year ever, uh, my first semester ever. I, I had uh, 
nine hours and I made a 1.67. <laughs> you got to really try to do that. So anyway, it was a much different experience, but I was going in and I was the, there has been somebody on my dad's side of the family who had graduated before, but nobody on my mom's side who had, had ever graduated from college before. It was just nothing we did. She used to say to me when I was a kid, you ought to be a carpenter or something like that. And nothing, I, I, carpenters are great, but it's not what I was drawn to. And I went back to school, I got my degree, and I'm driving down the highway one time, right when I had these things, driving down the highway, and I have these uh, announcements for my graduation in my back seat. And something came to me and it says, you got to go find her. And I was like, oh. <sighs> I really did not want to listen to this. So I went back down there to the same place on those streets, and I went looking for my mom. I went to a little couple of the little shops where I knew she would go, and I said, hey, have you seen my mom? She looks like, whoa, we know your mom. Yeah, she's there all the time. They go, well, we haven't seen her like in a couple of weeks now, and I don't know what's going on, but you may ought to go try to find her. I started calling all the hospitals in town. One of them I called was uh, Parkland which uh, for those of you who don't know, it's a county hospital down there in Dallas. I called down to Parkland. It was one of the hospitals, and they said, listen, we can't confirm or deny that she's here. However, if we come up with anything, you just give us your number, and we'll let you know. About a week later, they called me back. They said, we can, co we can confirm your mom's here, and she'd like to see you. I said, that's fine. Uh, a little time later, I went down there. I don't know if you've ever been to Parkland or not, and especially to the uh, mental ward. Um, but if you go upstairs, it looks just like one flew over the cuckoo's nest. I opened those doors. I saw her. She was sitting at some tables. She was 78 pounds. She did not look good whatsoever. We sat down at a table. We had a conversation. She looked at the big window over there. She goes, I just want to throw myself out of this window. I want to commit suicide. And I said, I understand, Mom. I do understand. And about halfway through the conversation, I said, you know, Mom, I don't know what it was between you and me, but whatever it was, it's not with me anymore. And I want you to be happy and joyous. I'm free, like I am. And she said, that's very interesting. She said, and she had never said this to me before. She said, there's something, there's something different about you. I said, really, what's that, Mom? What do you think? She goes, I think it may be this God you talk about. She was an atheist her whole life, agnostic, wouldn't let me go to, didn't want me to go to church, didn't want me around church people, didn't want me to do anything that had to do with God. And all of a sudden, she's sitting there, she, rec she recognizes something in me. A little while later, she got out of the hospital. We started meeting maybe once every couple of weeks, and then it was maybe once a week. They got her on some medicine. I never explained to you before, but she had OCD. All right, I guess you could figure that out. And it was pretty bad. So she had the OCD, she had the anorexia, she had the bulimia. She had, uh, we don't know what, I don't even know what it's called, but she used to have words that went through her head and she couldn't stop them. <coughs> she said the word death would just start running through her head and it just go, 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 go. And she couldn't stop the word. So they let her out. 
And we started, by the way, when she was in that hospital, they told me afterwards that they would bring in all the medical students. They would... They'd sit her up on the stage because she was such an interesting case for them. It's how they learn. And I understand when you go to a public place, that's how it's going to be. So anyway, she got out. And, uh, we started seeing each other on a consistent basis, and all of a sudden, we're doing very well. Uh, we're able to see each other. You know, she comes over to my apartment, and, you know, I'm able to set boundaries or whatever the case may be, you know. I say, listen, you can come in, but I know my apartment's all brown, and there's nothing on the wall, but I'm a bachelor. Just don't say anything, all right? And I like my apartment how it is. And she'd say, okay. And she'd go with that. And we just, you know, we just started getting along, and uh, she started getting well, and she got a job. And there was one year where she got false teeth, She'd go down to Baylor Medical Center somewhere where they give her some teeth, and she got a car that my aunt had given her, and she got some new glasses, and she said this had been the best year of her life. So there was, and then, you know, like Mother's Day would come along, and I would take her, by the way, I would go into, I would go into, um, the drugstore, and I'd try to pick out cards for all those years, right? The Mother's Day cards, and none of them ever, ever worked. I just wanted a blank card because, you know, none of it worked. And now we're having Mother's Day, and I'm taking her out, and she's still dressed in black, and she's still got the shaved hair, and it's still all. I'm like, you know that other people look at you, right, Mom? She goes, oh, yeah, I'm good with that. I said, all right, whatever you want. And she would call herself Twig. She started to develop her own little relationship with the God of her understanding. I said, how's that go, Mom? She goes, well, I just sat out at night. And I say, dear God, this is Twig. Having a good day, love, Twig. <laughs> and that was her relationship with God that she developed. I, I get a call one day. It's from her. And she says, I'm having some issues with my stomach. She says, I don't know what's going on, but I'm in a lot of pain. And I took her down to the uh, emergency room. <coughs> and uh, when I took her down to the emergency room, she was not doing well. She was there, and I'd go in and out. I'd, I'd be there during the day, and I'd, I'd be there at night. Uh, th then there was one day, about two, three days into it, I'm calling up the doctor, and I'm saying, hey, doc, my mom is tough. She's never asked for pain meds before. This is just not her. I'm not trying to get pain meds out of you, but she needs to have some more medication. She's not doing well. And the guy said, okay, I'll be there after lunch, but, you know, she's already had this much morphine. And so I go, I go back into the room with my mom. She has kind of a blank look on her face, and she smiles at me. And then she puts out her hand, and all of a sudden, her eyes roll into the back of her head. And I'd never seen anything like that before in my life. I ran up to the nurse's desk, they, and we're, we're holding hands, and I let go, and I ran into the nurse's desk, and they came back in, and they hit this button, I think it's called Blue, Code Blue. All of a sudden, there was about 15 people that swarmed in on that room. On that room. I'm sitting there watching all this go on. The woman who is my wife now, was my girlfriend at the time, Shannon. 
she had been researching some issues about what may be going on with my mom, and she calls me, and I had a little phone on my hip, and I pick up that phone, and I'm kneeling down, and she's saying, John, I think I found somebody who can help your mom. I think I know what's going on, or at least this doctor's able to look at her. And I said, it's too late. I'm watching her die right now. And so I hung up. She came down there. Right after that, though, the doctor came out and said, I'm sorry, we lost her. I went to her funeral. I gave the eulogy. I had a lot of feelings that week. So, so many feelings. Mainly I was feeling grief. Grief like I'd never felt before. But the thing that was interesting to me is I never had one second of feeling regret. I knew I had patched it up. I, I knew that by following the process that Alcoholics Anonymous had laid up, that we had mended between us. And I knew that all was okay. I went back to clean out her closet after this was all over. And I went up into her closet and up in the top right of it was a, a shoebox. And I got that shoebox down. And in that shoebox <laughs> were all those Mother's Day cards that I gave her while we had had some time together. She had saved every one of them. <sighs> I'm kind of running out of time. But there's a line in the book that says, are these extravagant promises? We think not. They are being fulfilled among us, sometimes quickly, sometimes slowly. But you can't expect a miracle. There's an old Irish poem, which I'll wrap up with. And the poem says, it's God talking to his people. And as God looks out to his people, he says, come down to the edge. And the people say, no, we can't. We're afraid. And God looks down to his people and he says, come down to the edge. And they say, no, we, we can't. We may fall off. And finally, God looks down at his people and he says, come down to the edge. And as the people walk out to the edge and they stand there and looking off at the abyss, God pushes them and they fly. And they never know fear again. And to me, that's what my relationship with Alcoholics Anonymous has been like. I walk down to the edge. You push me. And you say, it's going to be okay. I love you. Keep coming back. There are so many other things I would have liked to talk about. But when you're up behind a podium and there's a time limit, you just have so much time. One of the things I didn't get to cover was what happened and what has happened with my family over the years. By God's grace, uh, many of you know uh, and have heard her story, the lovely Mrs. M. We have been married for over 20 years now, and we have two beautiful children. And no, we are not perfect, and we all have our own struggles. 
but we're tight and we try to do things one day at a time the right way. Many times we don't do it the right way, but we try to learn from those experiences. And the only reason I bring this up is to say, how do you get from where I was to where I am today? God picked me up by the scruff of the neck, and he dropped me in Alcoholics Anonymous. And that is the only way I got to the point for me of where I am today. You guys taught me how to live, and you still continue to teach me how to live. And you've continued to give me the tools I need. Because it doesn't make sense that somebody comes from the type of background that I have, and they're able to have the type of life that I have nowadays. Now I realize I could take that off the rails at any second by just making a bunch of bad mistakes. But I try to stay close to you guys. I try to stay accountable to Alcoholics Anonymous and my sponsor. And once again, do things the right way, one day at a time. If this episode or any of the other episodes meant something to you, please pause your device and share it with a friend or family member. It may be just what they need today. Now, on to a little bit of listener feedback. Randy sends in a voicemail. Thank you, Randy. And here is Randy, and I'll have a little bit of comment afterwards. My name's Randy, and I'm an alcoholic. And I enjoy listening to you guys uh, at work. All day, it gets me through the day, and, and I love it. So, thank you so much. Thank you, Randy. Randy says it, the Sober Speak gets him through the day at work, and I love it. Randy, thanks for spending time with us. I know there are so many things that you and others could be doing with your time, and I appreciate you listening in. If you're listening in out there, and you are thinking to yourself, well, how come Randy gets to leave a voicemail and I do not? Well, don't think that way. We are all inclusive here at Sober Speak. You can leave a voicemail as well. Go to our www.soberspeak.com, click on contact us, or if you're on your device, and you're listening to an episode, all you got to do is pause it. And there should be in the, what they call the show notes, uh, episode notes, whatever you want to call it. There should, there's a little link in there that says, leave us a voicemail. And it's really kind of cool because even if you mess up on the front end and you want to say something else, well, it doesn't send it until you give it the go ahead. So leave us a voicemail if you would like. Michael writes in, Michael says, I first listened to Sober Speak last year while I was incarcerated, and I recently relapsed and remembered the podcast. Very cool, Michael. Um, and he says, I'm currently in a 30-day rehab, and that's basically a joke for me because that's not good enough. I've been able to stay sober 26 months, but not sober and clean. For whatever reasons, I've always just seemed to relate more in Alcoholics Anonymous. 
Anyway, when I was listening last year, I remember quite a few of the episodes are related with, and I'm actually excited that I'm sitting here this morning and I remember the name of your podcast. So thanks for making it possible for people uh, to be able to hear the message. And as soon as I can, I'm going to donate to you. I'm going to donate to you uh, uh, to your cause. And trust me, I'm uh, because you have got me through some rough times incarcerated during three months COVID lockdown. Thanks again, Mike. Mike, do not be concerned about donating at all. I just want you listening. I just want you staying on the right path and getting sober a day at a time. Get yourself a sponsor. Get involved in a meeting. Uh, Don't be concerned about any of that stuff. God bless you, Mike, and thank you for writing in. Jared writes in from London Town across the pond. He says, hey, John, I've, uh, I'm traveling for my job and I couldn't speak to my sponsor. Your podcast came to mind and hearing Mark Houston gave me the connection I needed and my perspective shifted. Yeah, what he's talking about there is uh, we uh, uh, published an episode with Mark Houston. It was called, what was it called? Uh, Oh, An Agent of God, which is from the big book. But I got to tell you, every time I say that in my head, An Agent of God, and (laughs) because I I think about the Blues Brothers in my head where they say, (laughs) and I'm on a mission from God, but Anyway, he was listening to that, an agent from God. And then Jared goes on and he says, it's tricky sometimes when my colleagues want to go out drinking and I can feel isolated and antisocial. My head can tell me I'm missing out or worry what they think of me. The truth is being sober is more than I could ever wish for. You and your wonderful speakers have helped me time and time again. And for that, I am truly grateful, Jared. Well, Jared from London and town, thank you for writing in, and I'm glad uh, we could uh, be a, a, a small part of your sobriety and give you a little, uh... you know, I think of this, uh, this podcast is like, if you want some serenity and you want to slow down and you want to get away from the... You know, much like when I go to a meeting, I'm getting away from all the, the politics and everything else. But so if you want something to slow down and you want something to take your mind off of all the troubles in the world, come on in and listen to us. We're happy you're here. And thanks, Jared. John writes in, not me, John, but another John. He says, hi, John. I found Sober Speak because a friend mentioned Uh, the podcast in a meeting during COVID. You, in big capital letters, have gotten me through some tough times and I'm so grateful for you and your podcast. I live in Chicago and I have 19 years sober. Good for you, John. Honestly, all the speakers have resonated with me. That's why I love it so much. Uh, The only thing I would say is I want to hear a little bit of diversity. As a gay man, I haven't heard much in the way of a largely diverse 
audience, but that could just be me. Uh, I used to be a circuit speaker, so I also know you may have had some diverse speakers who choose to focus on the solution and not their race or sexuality. You're doing great things, John M., and I'm so grateful for you and your team that puts this together. John O. in Chicago. Well, John, you're right. I can think of at least, I would say, 10 to 12 episodes that have had uh, those from the LBGTQ, I hope I got that right, community. And, um, and and I guess what I'm saying is, is that some of them choose to talk about that front and center, in fact, kind of make it a, a mainstay or a main uh, focus within their story and others just don't care to talk about it, right? They just want to talk about alcoholism, but I get it. And, uh, you know, as, as you know, I've, I've been going back and forth with you on email and, uh, I'll try to be more conscious of that. Danny writes in and Danny says, good morning, John. Sounds a little bit like good morning, Vietnam. It rhymes at least. Anyway, it says good morning, John, a big and big capital letters. Oh, and thank you in big capital letters for your podcast. Yesterday, I found your podcast on Amazon Music while traveling to Brevard, B-R-E-V-A-R-D, North Carolina. He says, and I am starting day three of sobriety. Well, God bless you, Danny. You can't see me right now, but I'm doing like little namaste hands and bowing toward you on day three of sobriety. Uh, Keep it up, and I'm glad we can help out. Keep me posted. Um, I'd love to hear more from you later. Krishna writes in and he says, hello, John, this is Krishna. I am an AA member from Nepal. That's a long way over there. I think that's a little north of India, a little south of China, if I'm okay on my geography, but I'm not completely sure. He says, I found the, so he says, I found sober speaking Facebook and I was willing to listen to the speakers as well. Love and hugs from uh, oh, uh, Nepal, and, and I think this is a big city in Nepal, Katha, Katha, Kathmandu. Oh, it looks like I'm going to Kathmandu. Uh, that's a song uh, over here in the United States, Krishna. It's actually Kathmandu, I think is what it is. But anyway, he's, he's go. it's by Bob Seger. It's a really good song. Uh, if they don't have a song like that in Kathmandu, Nepal, maybe you should write one, Krishna. But anyway, love and hugs back out to you and all your, oh gosh, what would it be? Your Nepalese friends, your your. N- your Napolitan ne- uh, n- 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 friends, what, what what is it called? Uh, you know, all your people from that are in Nepal, <laughs> please give them my best. <laughs> and I'm sorry, I'm not making fun of Nepal. I'm just, I'm trying to figure out what people from Nepal would be called. Nepalese, uh, Napolitans, Nepals, uh, uh, ne- who knows? Thank you, Krishna, for writing in. I'm sure you didn't expect any of that. Chad! 
<laughs> Chad writes in and he says, hello, John M. This is Chad B. from your local Frisco group. Yes, Chad, I know you. We have several Chads there, but I know who you're talking about. He says, I appreciate Sober Speak podcast and I derive a ton of value from listening every week. I'm coming up on my 19 months. This has been 19 months already, Chad. That is absolutely fantastic. My 19 months sober and I spent many a night or day listening to your guest as therapy between meetings. <laughs> Got it. I don't know if I call it therapy, but I get it. He says, I'm 53 years old now. Oh, you don't look 53, Chad. You're, uh, you've, you've held up well through your alcoholism <laughs> and, and, and living the good life sober with my wife and two sons. One is in college and the other just graduated. Somehow I managed to maintain my wife and my family in a good IT engineering consulting career until my drinking escalated and everything and everyone suffered around me. Man, I know how that works. He says, I have been a heavy beer drinker since my teens and it progressively escalated to the point of daily drinking heavy with no end in sight and no way to stop. I hit a personal rock bottom and finally sought help and I was sick of how I felt about myself and life around me. Through the grace of God, I was honest with myself that I'm an alcoholic, put on my big boy pants, and finally found an AA sponsor to help me work the steps. Fast forward to now, and I'm sponsoring another and learning even more uh, around learning even more round two, passing on what was so freely giving to, uh, what was so freely given to me to another. I'm sorry. I probably messed that up. He says, I also have my sponsee hooked on listening to sober speak podcast. Oh, well, that's a great move there, Chad. <laughs> and as another tool, just it's another tool for staying spiritually fit and connected when you can't be at a meeting. Yes, that's what I intended to be. Keep up the great work and God bless. Happy holidays and Merry Christmas, Chad B. Well, happy holidays, Merry Christmas back at you, Chad B. And I'll look forward to seeing you in the meetings face to face. Tina writes in and she says, Hey John, I truly don't know how I found your podcast. I'm guessing it's a God thing. I'm not an alcoholic or an addict, but I do have issues that I'm guessing God wants me in big capital letters to deal with through your podcast. I'm co uh, I'm codependency issues along with a lot of the same things alcoholics and addicts deal with. Plus, I recently lost my husband due to a drug overdose, September 6th of 2022. We were only married for two and a half two years and five months. Never knew the depths of addicts dealt with till I married one. God. Yes. Uh, I'm sorry you had to go through that. And, um, and we have a lot of our guests talk about that, what the families have to deal with at the same time. And God bless you. But I'm, I'm, I'm glad you can use us as a tool in your recovery, Tina. Appreciate it. Paul writes in and Paul says... Hi there. I'm an alcoholic in early recovery, 42 days, and I'm working on the program with a sponsor. As an academic, I have a brief comment about the latest episode. 
Oh, I know what he's talking about here. So he listened to uh, Sarah G. Part One, and in there we talk about uh, the professor she was in a relationship with, and about how oh the professor told her that AA was a cult and all that sort of stuff. And it was kind of a to me it was like a funny story. Uh, and by that I mean that you know they go out back and they're. <laughs> Sarah and the professor are burning her big book and all this other AA literature and filming it, but and saying what that AA is a cult, but at the same time, Sarah is slurring all her words, which makes it I don't know, just just kind of silly, ironic, I don't know what you want to call that. But anyway, as an, as an academic, he says, I have a brief comment about the latest episode. Any professor that has a romantic relationship with a student, any student has weak boundaries and is exploiting a power, a, excuse me, not a power, a power imbalance. There is not enough time in either of our lives for me to list all of the brilliant scholars in our society whose personal lives mirror that of a train wreck. Any advice from such a person about alcoholism is suspect. The world of academia is so, is of course a space where drinking is often encouraged and promoted. Unless said professor is an expert in medicine and addiction studies, they are no better positions to speak on the matter than a random person on the street should stay and should stay within their area of research and teaching specialization. I'm loving the podcast, John. It is a needed, quote, meeting between meetings, unquote. I'm grateful for you and the service your podcast offers. Kindest regards, Paul R. Well, thank you, Paul. Uh, I agree with you. Um, and, um, ah. Enough said. Thank you for writing in. All right, everybody, that wraps up Uno Mas Semana of the podcast. I wonder how you say podcast in Spanish. I think I have wondered this aloud in the past. Um, and you, you know, if I was really, really interested, I would probably <laughs> look it up. But then the thing is, I would find it and not really know how to pronounce it. I probably have to go to one of those dictionaries to where you click on the little thing and it gives you the 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 sound, the enunciation. It actually, you, you get to hear somebody saying the word. And all of that is just <laughs> way too much work. So anyway, God bless. Um Keep coming back. It works if you work it. May God bless you and keep you until then. And keep in mind, I am one week at a time with this deal. I hope to be back next week. I may, I may not. So far, I've pretty much made it every time. But you never know. So we take it one day at a time. God bless you. Uh, love you guys. Keep coming back.